Uh, well, good evening, everybody, and uh, thanks for coming. Delighted to see so many of you here. Uh, and I'd like to welcome you to uh, this event, uh, which is uh, the second of our events, actually, at the LSE in this old theatre on, uh, on synthetic biology. Follows up one organized by my colleague Sarah Franklin a year or so ago with Craig Venter. Um, but the specific thing about this event is that this is the launch, at least from the LSE side of things, of a new center that we're uh, organizing jointly with colleagues at Imperial College in, in, in London, who will be on the panel later. It's called the Center for Synthetic Biology and Innovation. It's funded by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, rather unusual uh, for uh, people who want to involve the London School of Economics. And the reason for that, I think, is uh, something that will probably emerge in this debate, which is the way in which new technologies, uh, innovative technologies like nanotechnology and like synthetic biology, seem to be raising very, very significant social concerns that people need to address right at the very beginning. So we hope very much that this event here this evening will be the beginning of an ongoing dialogue both at the LSE and between us at the LSE from all our disciplinary backgrounds and the researchers and the scientists working at Imperial on these crucial issues. So uh, I'd like to welcome you again and I'd like to hand over uh, to Quentin Cooper who's going to be the MC of this event. Thank you, Nick. Uh, yes, I'm Quentin Cooper. I present uh, Radio 4's uh, weekly science program, Material World, which goes out at 4.30 on Thursdays, which means I have come hot foot from the studio to be with you today. And if there is one thing you take away from today, it's, it's Material World, 4.30 Thursdays, Radio 4. <laughs> we do need, and there's a podcast available. It's very good. And because I've come hot foot from there, I need notes, because otherwise I'd be talking to you about what was on the program today. One of which is actually kind of germane to what we're talking about today, because uh, I've just done an item about how it's been announced that they found... 17,500 species lurking in the deep ocean, 5,500 of them below a kilometre, which is quite astonishing figures. These are areas where nothing could survive. As I say, if you've, you, you know, it was a really good discussion, but don't worry, you haven't missed it because Material World 4.30 Thursdays is available as a podcast as well. But it made me think, so although you know, tonight's theme, tonight's title is creating the organisms that evolution forgot, Discovering all these species where we didn't think species were is a sign that actually evolution doesn't forget much. Almost every niche, however tenuous, is filled. Almost every opportunity to live, however fleeting, is occupied. So what can we hope to do through synthetic biology, through this new centre, to go beyond that? What's left for us? It's all clearly an amazing achievement to be able to, to even contemplate uh, synthesising life. But if we can create creatures that are significantly different to those that are already there, is that going beyond what's reasonable to what's almost unnatural in terms of the unnatural world? Or is it taking advantage of the fact that evolution is always a process that proceeds one step at a time, always going forward? This is a chance to actually winnow out some of the stuff that doesn't work, to actually do a bit of corporate downsizing on life and make a more efficient organism, the way that some people try and make a more efficient company. And is it all worth it in the end if it gets us to the place we want to be, which is everything from better medicines to more efficient biofuels? Now, there's some quite chunky questions to chew over here. And doing most of the chewing over and most of the questioning and most of the points, I hope, is going to be yourselves. This is a debate. I get to ask questions of scientists all my life. This is an audience event. I'm going to try and drive it as much as possible from your points and questions. They can be naive. They can be really, really specific, although obviously if they get beyond me, I will stick my hand up and seek clarification. Now, just to help 
Before we get on to the points and questions, and before I get the panel on stage, we're going to see a little film to set some of these big ideas up. Uh, and after we've seen it, that'll be when we get going. Um, I should warn those of you in the audience, if anybody here is of a particularly sensitive nature, this film lasts about 10 minutes, and it does feature some disturbingly chirpy voiceover work. But otherwise, you should be able to cope. And it should start about now. The following KQED production was produced in high definition. Drew Endy wants to build. So he needs tools, like nuts and bolts, standard parts that work together. You don't need a PhD to know this, but a PhD may help, say, if you were building not with bricks or steel, but with DNA. It may sound like science fiction, but a new generation of scientists known as synthetic biologists is using genetic nuts and bolts to build new functions into living things. The possibilities abound. Imagine living cells acting as memory devices, or microbes that brew biofuels, or drugs that can save lives. If you were to decide that you wanted to use biology as a technology for manufacturing something, it might be a chemical or a drug or a food or a material, you'd have to figure out how to reprogram a living organism. Synthetic biology is the process to design and build that living organism. We've known about DNA, the molecular blueprint of life, since 1953. But in order to build from this blueprint and modify it, you need to do more than just read it. You need to be able to make genes, the building blocks of an organism, and assemble them to change the genetic structure and functions of the organism. In the past, engineering with DNA was a bit like trying to write a book but doing so only using words and sentences found in other books. So you rip out pages, you cut and paste the words together. Cumbersome if you're on deadline. Now let's say you have a new powerful tool, a word processor that lets you easily and efficiently put those words together. This tool for writing or constructing genes quickly is helping make synthetic biology possible. When I was getting my degree, we had to cut and paste very laboriously genes out of organisms. Now we can completely throw all of that knowledge out in a sense and we can order specific sequences that we want where instead of having to bring together words that already exist in biology, we can write out exactly what we want and so we can create sequences that would have taken us years to try to build by the more traditional methods and get them in days. So exactly how do you make genes from scratch? Well, let's say you want to make a gene found in ocean bacteria that turn cells blue. First, you need to know the gene's recipe, which is comprised of molecules called nucleotides that are commonly known by their first letter, A's, T's, C's, and G's. Then you can tailor that gene, modifying it to fit your needs. So you use a program to specify things about it, like how blue it makes the cells. Then, just submit your order via email, and firms like DNA 2.0 and Menlo Park will actually build it for you. 
This machine, the DNA synthesizer, does the first step, the assembly of single strands of the gene from sugars and phosphates. Based on the length of the gene, it can take from four to 10 days. The cost, roughly $1,500 for this particular gene. When it's done, our gene is mailed off. Then, just mix the gene with water and bacteria cells, and voila, cells that turn blue. Custom genes made to order, and though they're built into living cells, the process is one of renovation, not creation. We are not creating life. Uh, we are modifying uh, biological systems, and we're doing so in a more predictable way than we were ever able to do using standard genetic engineering techniques. We're essentially making the engineering of biology more predictable and therefore safer. So what's to stop someone from going online and ordering genes for a lethal virus? We've actually gotten gene synthesis companies on board to screen all of their gene synthesis orders so that they're not sending out genes that would encode some toxic protein. And with the cost of gene synthesis falling by roughly half every two years, orders flood in. But making genes is the easy part. If you knew what to say, you could use synthetic biology to write new genetic narratives. The challenge is to figure out what the heck do you want to say. And to figure out what you want to say with synthetic biology, you need to have more than just the ability to write those genetic narratives. You need a vocabulary of simple words that can be snapped together to make useful statements. It's akin to building an electrical device with off-the-shelf parts designed to work together. In electronics, you see very refined, heavily standardized objects that are available via mass production off-the-shelf that work together. So what synthetic biology is trying to figure out how to do is how would you standardize all these different pieces of DNA so that when you put them together, it's not a surprise what happens, it's what we expect. In 2003, Drew Endy co-founded the world's first registry of standard biological parts contributed by scientists and students. To promote and protect this resource, he and others at MIT, Harvard, and the University of California, San Francisco set up a nonprofit. The Biobricks Foundation, or BBF for short, came to life in order to enable an open technology platform. We're starting at the DNA level, we're making a toolkit of parts, these basic biological functions that are coming from all over the living world, but now being integrated into a common platform that everybody can use. You can have pieces of DNA that are designed to go together as reliably as nuts and bolts. Jeff Tabor is helping to stock the BioBrick store with one of those genetic nuts and bolts. So one of the things we've done in the lab is uh, engineer E. coli to be able to act as a film that can take a photograph. Um, to do this, uh, we introduced a light receptor gene from algae into E. coli. So what we do is take a little bit of the engineered E. coli, and we add them to a media, and we pour them on a flat surface so that they form a two-dimensional film. Now once this is done, all we need to do is let them grow overnight. So we've been able to use this technology to produce photographs or portraits of uh, many different things. For example, Albert Einstein, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the Virgin Mary. But we can also use it to produce logos. Here's how it works. A projector shines red light through a black and white slide containing an image. 
When the algae light receptor in the plate of bacteria detects the red light shown on it, it shuts off production of a black pigment which the bacteria make when they're in the dark. And so the result is a plate of bacteria which have light and dark areas that correspond to the pattern on the projected image. But don't expect to capture your Kodak moments with E. coli anytime soon. The problem with E. coli films is that they take hours to produce images as opposed to seconds for a traditional camera. But the cool thing is that uh, E. coli are so small that we can fit about 10 billion E. coli pixels on this petri dish as opposed to about 1 million or so pixels on your computer monitor. Even if there's no direct application yet, it's no small feat to take a light-sensitive gene from algae and turn it on in blind bacteria. It's the power of synthetic biology, where genes are assembled into existing cells to create circuits that program the cells to do new things, like make an image. And synthetic biology is now making its mark outside the lab. As Jay Kiesling and Jack Newman know, it's a technology that can help save lives. Artemisinin is the drug of choice for treating malaria. It comes from the wormwood plant. It takes a long time to produce it, about 14 months. And there are large spikes in the prices, which means that it's very difficult to predict the price, and that price is then passed on to the consumer. In this case, consumers are people who earn less than a dollar per day. In any given year, between one and three million people who can't afford treatment die from malaria. Ninety percent are children under five. We hypothesized that we could engineer a microbe to produce artemisinin using synthetic biology. We had to discover the genes that were responsible for producing artemisinin in the plant and then transfer those genes into a microbe. But this cutting-edge research needed funding. We put together a grant with the Institute for One World Health, which is a nonprofit pharmaceutical company, uh, Amaris, which was just getting its start in life, and UC Berkeley, and submitted that grant to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, was funded for about $43 million. Using E. coli or yeast, we can now produce artemisinic acid in a fraction of the time that it takes the plant to produce it. At Amaris, a biotech firm based in Amaryville, they refine the process by improving the yield of artemisinic acid from the sugar-fed yeast. What you want to see out of a run like this is that you've got good quality material that is either as good as or better than the artemisina that's on the market today. In 2008, pharmaceutical giant Sanofi Aventis was chosen to commercialize the biosynthetic production of artemisinin. If all goes well, it will be made in a matter of weeks rather than months, and by 2012, this low-cost drug could reach malaria sufferers. The same process can be used to direct yeast to brew thousands of other chemicals, even fuel. You can make a biofuel of the future by also putting in a different yeast. So you, you get out a, a beautiful looking diesel like this with just a different brewer's yeast. It's easy to marvel at synthetic biology's potential applications. The hard part is to acknowledge how much we still don't know. The truth is we understand relatively little about the living world. Most of biology is still out there to be discovered. Every time we go out and we sequence more DNA in an environmental sample, we'll tend to find more genes, oftentimes genes that we don't know anything about. In this context, openness and sharing is a no-brainer. 
because that's how you're going to get the most exciting, best ideas, and most useful components coming forward for everybody else to try out and use. The following KQED production was produced in high definition. make the debate in high definition as well, if at all possible. And I hope you spotted the uh, possibly not deliberate mistake in there, but I'm pretty sure we knew about DNA before 1953. It's just the structure we got sorted out there as well. So, bearing in mind, we want to have plenty of time for your points and questions. We should have a good, good hour's worth if we've got them. We're going to meet the panel, and hopefully that film will have helped to tee up some extra thoughts as well. I'm going to start on my extreme left with uh, Nick, and we'll work, work our way across. Sorry, Nicholas, I should be formal here. Okay, I'm, so I'm just a line and maybe a little opening thought on your position on the whole business of syn synthetic biology. I'm Nick Rose from the sociology department here in the, in the Bio Center at LSE um, and uh, involved with the Center for Synthetic Biology and Innovation. Um, I think synthetic biology has the potential to be an absolutely fantastically uh, powerful technology, but it will only have that, uh, realize that potential if it can convince those people in the world around that it is a technology for public value and not for commercial, not solely for commercial profit, and that the issues of safety and security and so on have been uh, genuinely taken a account of. So those are the kinds of interests that, uh, that I have in relation to this uh, new development. Thank you. Uh, We're going to try leaving the mics where they are. In okay, theory, sorry. they work because there's always that rustly bit that you can people shuffle them all around. Um, so I'm James Wilson. I'm uh, director of science policy at the Royal Society, which is uh, the UK's National Academy of Science. Um, as the National Academy, I guess our interest in, in synthetic biology is, falls into two areas. One is how we ensure that the UK. Uh, remains uh, at the forefront of this uh, exciting and emerging field. Uh, but secondly, in, in line very much with what Nick was saying, uh, that we also ensure the field develops in a responsible way uh, and that the clear uh, ethical, regulatory, uh, security dilemmas that, that there are uh, in and around synthetic biology are addressed by the science community as well as by policymakers. I'm uh, Philip Campbell. I'm the editor-in-chief of Nature, and uh, our prime responsibility historically has been to publish revolutionary research, and uh, some of the research we've published has indeed been some of the pioneering work in synthetic biology, but we also have a responsibility to foster communication about science, about the processes of science. Um, so I've been pleased over the last few years to publish um, what you might call two different strands. One is <coughs> reflections by people like Drew Endy about how the discipline of synthetic biology should evolve, a combination of science and engineering, a combination of um, free creativity and professionalism on the one, uh, that's one strand. And another strand, which hasn't yet got into synthetic biology, is to look at the relationships between the natural sciences and the social sciences. So I was very pleased earlier on um, this year to have published an article by your very own Ilana Singh and Nick about a different topic, which was some of the social impacts of uh, mental health biomarkers. So that's where we stand. And you're probably relieved just to be here, not doing climate gate conversations for a while <laughs> as well. Do that anytime you want. Oh, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm uh, Hugh Whittle, director of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics. 
the Nuffield Council's job is to is to examine and report on ethical issues arising out of biomedical, uh, biological and medical research. Um, we have been kind of nibbling around at this, wondering whether to uh, whether there's something that the, that the council can do in examining questions in this area. We're not not settled on it uh, on it yet. Um, so to, to that extent, we've, we've been mulling around, but I come with no expertise in anything whatsoever. I should just make that point. Um, uh, as to you know, one point is just to put on the table for the moment. I think that to the extent that there are anxieties around synthetic biology, and I think they are, there are, um, and to the extent that they are often not very well articulated, um, I think that we just have to uh, be ready to, to try and understand what lies behind them, not simply to d dismiss them because they seem irrational or, or uh, not well articulated, but, but in doing that, not allow those to lead us into uh, a, um, a, a panic reaction, an overreaction, an overregulation at an early stage of technology. In other words, not do what we did with GM. You could say that. <laughs> Uh, so I'm Richard Kidney, I'm the um, co-director of the uh, EPSERC Centre for Synthetic Biology and Innovation at Imperial College with uh, Paul Fremont who's sitting next to me. Uh, for me, uh, synthetic biology is a really exciting new area because it, because it represents for me the bringing together the confluence of uh, biology and engineering with physics uh, and indeed a lot of new technology and I firmly believe, and we'll probably get into this, that um, uh, this could well produce a new industrial revolution uh, and that there will be um, many applications in many different fields. Okay, and finally Paul. Yeah, I'm Paul Friant, I'm the other director of the centre, <laughs> um, and I'm a molecular, structural molecular biologist by, by uh, trade, um, but I've got interested in synthetic biology because I'm quite interested in the interesting differences between engineering and between biology because there's a sort of a real uh, important interface here which is very exciting because biology is not used to being engineered and there's a question that I'm very interested in is can you actually engineer biology as engineers would engineer anything. Interesting. So that is your panel. Yes, they are all men. We've noticed that and <laughs> I'm all man too. And I just hope the same doesn't go for the questions and the comments. Um, now, although just before we start asking, there is one, two final small bits of business. The usual one of, if you can make sure your mobile phones are off, all incredibly important people as you are. That applies to the panel as well. And secondly, uh, it's not just the material world for 30 Thursdays that gets podcast. There are plans to also uh, put a version of this event tonight online. So if you are, I don't know, a, a fugitive from justice or otherwise deeply shy and do not want to be seen online, I suggest you refrain from asking questions. However, the panel, you're kind of stuck with this now. Uh, because it's a debate that's driven by your points and questions, I'm going to confine myself or attempt to just one really basic one to start with, which I'm probably going to say to Paul, is can we just make sure we're all clear? Have you got a nice, simple, easy to comprehend notion of what synthetic biology <laughs> spans? Well, I mean, I think that actually that video what I thought was, was tremendous. I mean, it certainly presented um, the view that both Dick and I believe that, that synthetic biology is, a, is a, a convergence of engineering and physical sciences with biology. Um, and the step change that I see that, um, that molecular biology needs to take forward is the ability to actually uh, con construct itself in a, in a conceptual framework around engineering, because engineers build lots of things. And of course, if you have that conceptual framework of how engineers build things, then can you apply that to biology? And I think the difference between synthetic biology and what molecular biology has been doing for many, many years is this idea of an 
engineering, conceptual framework, parts, devices, modularity, robustness, reliability. And I think those are the points which uh, really need to be emphasized. I think if you're talking about synthetic biology. And is everyone on the panel happy with the phrase synthetic biology? Anybody think, I wish they called it something else? Yeah, I wish they had. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, lots of people say that, but the thing is, it, it is called synthetic biology internationally, and everybody understands what it means so, in, yeah. the, in the field. It's just that you are going to get certain yeah. reactions when you yeah. talk about synthesizing biology. Okay, I, I didn't I think. I mean, I, th I think one, one question which, which always comes up is to what extent is what's now called synthetic biology something very new, a sort of real step change, or something that's uh, just a development of things that uh, we've seen before. To some extent, I think, like with all these things, and I would say this as a, as a kind of social scientist, you know, the naming of it actually is a performative act. And to give it this new name is not just to name something, but is also to transform it and to give it a, a new sort of, uh, a new lease of life. And I think that's what's happening with synthetic biology. And in a sense, hoping that the debate around synthetic biology is not the same as the debate around other dreaded technologies that we've heard about in the past. Okay. Nice early use of performative act as well. Uh, so I did, I did promise it would be as much as possible driven by yourselves. Because we're a little bit short of time, if we can cut the usual pause before the first question while we all look embarrassed and just cut straight to somebody asking something or making a comment, that would be really handy. We've got roving mics out there. Thank you very much. And you're right next to them as well. This is so good. Oh, can we maybe just get people asking questions? Just if, unless you don't want to, but maybe say who you are. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm James Brown. I'm from the University of Cambridge, and I'm a, I'm a researcher in a synthetic biology lab. I've been involved in Symbios since I did iGEM as a student in 2005, and I'm about six months off a PhD. And I was quite interested to see, really to take an audience poll and see what people's backgrounds are. I don't know if we can do that quickly to see if we've got social scientists, researchers, and who people are that are here. This is great. I've got a member of the audience who wants to conduct an audience poll. This is fantastic. <laughs> I'll just go home now. Okay, it's, it's a good idea. So, you heard the question. So, what are the categories? You want to know who's from? So, how many people are here have got a biological background and work in a bio lab? Okay, how many people are social scientists? Uh, how many people are members of the public and don't, aren't part of LSE? <laughs> <laughs> or Imperial or Cambridge? Does anybody count themselves as a GM activist, for example? Does anybody not agree with genetic engineering? Okay. There we yeah, go. Although you are allowed to keep your powder dry if you wish to. <laughs> it's, it's not compulsory. It's, it's not an attempt to kind of, right, get them out of the audience now. So. Fine. That, that's all you wanted to know? Okay. That's good. That's good. That's we cool. We've, we've started with a poll. I think that I'm really quite impressed. Okay, anybody else who's, who wants to uh, cut through the normal? I'll go to the gentleman right in the middle there. I'd like to point out, six male panellists, male host, male questions. Just a little gender bias thing creeping in already. Uh, Robert Faulkner from the LSE. Quick question, um, short one too. If this is a revolutionary science and technology, do we need a new revolutionary approach to governing, regulating it? I think we should maybe start governing... Society have some considerations on these matters. Sure. Um, I mean, like Nick, I, I, I have some nervousness about uh, uh, announcing the, the sort of ushering in of, of uh, entirely new fields and, and certainly of, of new industrial revolutions. Um, but clearly, there is something new and interesting happening here. Uh, and yes, I think it does need uh, uh, a fresh. Uh, look at, at the adequacy of existing governance and regulatory structures. We held a very um, interesting 
two-day meeting with the National Academies in, in Washington uh, in July last year, uh, this year rather, July this year, uh, looking transatlantically at uh, um, uh, these issues and, and the um, sufficiency or otherwise of, of structures that were in place. Um, the general response certainly here in the UK in, in, in Whitehall has been that there's nothing sufficiently novel here that the existing uh, uh, regulatory structures can't handle. Um, but as the science itself advances, that position obviously comes under, under some, some strain. Um, and I think there will be uh, definitely the need to, uh, to, you know, to revisit things, most acutely on the, on the, the biosecurity side. And I think the, um, um, the recent announcement that the Home Office now is undertaking a review of the security uh, aspects of synthetic biology over the next few months is perhaps the first uh, chink in, in, in that Whitehall position. We'll come back to the security one, I'm sure. But do you think there's a danger that we get into this situation that there are parallels with stem cells, where the, sometimes the, the technology is getting ahead of the law, sometimes the law is getting ahead of the technology, sometimes they're almost trying to draft legislation for possibilities that don't exist, and it can get quite edgy? Yes, I mean that. that I mean that can. I don't think there's any sign of that happening in this in this area yet. I think in some ways we haven't. Uh, I mean, if the the uh, the hype and the promise is to be believed in this area, I don't think it's really yet. Um, uh, the, the implications have really yet been thought through by, by, by policy makers, so I'd see it more on the other end. Right, uh, but they'll begin to as it gets nearer. Philip? Well, I just wanted to say that I think, um, although in principle it may not be that different, in practice it's very different, um, as, at least if it achieves everything they're hoping, which is to make it very cheap and very easy to make things that can be very powerful. And therefore, I don't think you can just um, accept that the current regulation, regulatory system can cope. But it's not obvious to me that any regulatory system can cope. So it may be that you have to start thinking rather differently about the, the precautions you need to put in place. And one such could be if you assume that hackers, people working in garages, are going to be able to make diseases that can spread, whether they're understood diseases or not, you may need to along the lines of coping with bioterrorism, which is a parallel threat at the moment, um, you may need to put up a much more sophisticated network out there of detecting outbreaks of disease, which is a sort of top-down solution. And, and, but maybe, in the long term, the only way that society can really cope with this. There are companies who make genomes who are trying to set up their own self-regulating collaborations, but they're having real difficulty in doing that. I mean, it's early days, but I think... I think it is something that really does need attention. Because it's this, it's this parallel with the computer industry, that you're not, not only on the dark side of the computer virus, but it is. It's, it's people putting things, small components together and making unforeseeable things. You could not possibly have anticipated that the computer generation will get you this piece of software, this game, this application here, that thing there. There will be all sorts of things that everyone thinks is going to happen that don't happen, and all sorts of things that are not on anyone's radar that do. So I remember seeing a presentation by Greg Baer, science fiction writer, but he's a, he's a very well-versed science fiction writer, and he's involved in networks of regulatory discussion and ethical discussion. And he posed the picture that a, a hacker let loose a virus of some sort that really did devastate an area of America. What would happen? And he assumed that research would shut down in a very you know, substantial way for a long period of time before people were confident enough about what was going on. Um, and, you know, he's not... Uh, he, he's a science fiction writer who people can respect. Thank okay. you. Yeah, I... I, I think there are um, things that are novel here. There are, there are issues about um, complexity and uncertainty that will be quite challenging in terms of the, the way um, certain aspects of governance arrangements work. Um, and I think that if we, if we look at risk and precaution, then th there are some challenges that are going to be very difficult. However, I, I just think it's worth saying that 
I think that governance has to be seen in a much wider context than that, because otherwise we then just start looking at the ways in which we need to constrain and close down. And governance should be seen in a, in a, in a much wider way, that there are aspects of governance which are about um, self-governance, about professional conduct, but then also about public policy, which is about the things that we want to encourage, the way in which we try to steer and direct uh, research and development uh, to, for certain ends, depending on what objectives and principles we have on a public policy level. So I think that it will be difficult, it will have to be uh, different, but I, I just would like to see it in, a, in, in that much broader context than simply saying, what are the levers that we've got to constrain? Nick, is it partly a question of how the, the, the whole package of possibilities is presented? I don't know if anyone's had a chance to look at that little, uh, little brochure, that, or pamphlet you've got here, but there's a, there's a little cartoon here about uh, the entire point of all this, it says, is that these are going to hide all the details inside a black box so you don't have to remember all this stuff. And there's a kind of parallel here that you can come up with all the good possibilities and the odd negative possibility, and I can see some people go, actually, on the whole, we choose not to open that box because we've, we're scared of the bad possibilities. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we had quite a debate about that cartoon. I'm, I don't understand cartoons very well, but it was, it was explained to me that what's hidden in the black box, this is not Pandora's box, which is about to be open, <laughs> which we'd very much prefer wasn't open. What's in this black box is the idea of a, the engineering idea, and I'm sure Dick and Paul can talk much more about that, that once you've uh, developed your standard parts, once you've developed your light bulb or something like that, you can plug the light bulb into a circuit without really knowing how the light bulb works. So that, I think, was... Forgive me, I don't understand cartoons. Um, I, I, I mean, I think there is a thing that is very interesting that's happening here. Maybe it's not so much about what the outcome is, but it's about what the process is. Uh, these are uh, rev potentially revolutionary technologies uh, at a very early stage with many consequences which are anticipated, but also many, many consequences that cannot be anticipated. And yet policymakers and the people who are doing the research uh, and us sitting around here and you in, the, in, the, in this uh, discussion all somehow feel that we've got some kind of obligation to think about the future and to manage that future in the present because if we don't do and something terrible goes wrong we'll all feel very culpable about it. So this idea, of this, this obligation, the responsibility that we have to the future in the present, which is a, both a scientific responsibility, a political responsibility, and ethical responsibility, and how we manage that in the face of uncertainty, and how we have a debate about that in the face of uncertainty, that does seem to me to be quite, uh, quite novel, as does the fact that certainly for for us, and I'm pleased that the audience is about 50-50 between the social scientists and the people with a biological background, and for us this means actually a genuine discussion right at the very beginning between us and the people who are working doing the, doing the research. Now, I think it's the, for me the process is what's kind of rather an interesting experiment here. Richard, I'm going to keep calling you Richard because everybody else is calling you Dick, but I've not been, <laughs> we've not been introduced. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would put a different angle on this uh, concept of the black box. Uh, and where this comes from in synthetic biology is really engineering. Uh, so this is part of the engineering that goes into synthetic biology. And I'll give you a, an exact example so you, you know, people can understand what, what is happening here. It's not that people don't understand what's inside the black box. The idea is that, um, for example, if you take a, a central processing chip for a PC, nowadays that may have a billion transistors sitting in that chip. Now, the people who use the chip to build the computer around it 
really don't know very much about what's going on in terms of those individual transistors. But for example, the people at Intel who design the chip, they know all about what goes into that chip. And so the, the concept here is the differentiation of the different levels in terms of design. That's what we mean by the black box. It's not that, you know, individuals who are involved in synthetic biology don't know the detail of what's inside the black box. It's the point that, you know, if you want to use that black box or let's say one of the parts to build a device out of several parts, you don't actually need to know in great detail how the part goes together. Right, yeah, you don't need an A-level biology to yeah. enjoy a sandwich. Uh, okay, uh, go to there. Hi, I'm Emily Hoover from the law department at Queen Mary College. And I was just wondering, uh, in light of that great idea of doing an audience poll and some of the comments we've had so far about the great um, representation we have from the social sciences and the biological sciences, um, on sort of a more practical note about implementing some of the ways we can get into governance of um, synthetic biology. I'm just wondering how many people involved in law and policy making are here tonight because in the end that is going to be one of the major ways how this kind of thing is going to be um, regulated. Show of hands. Yeah. A couple um, of lawyers in the audience. Don't be so shy. It's so close to Lincoln's in field, we could have easily arranged that. <laughs> are you surprised? Oh, a little bit. A lot of the literature I've read so far has, uh, I guess, focused on the social science and uh, biological science aspect of this. And it's good to see some more people looking at the law and how these regulations might be drafted if we end up doing that. I find that quite interesting. My background is actually more in uh, policy than anything else. Um, and I think that, um, well, I mean, plenty of people could, could probably disagree with this, but I think that we're, we're seeing a time over recent years where scientists, not just scientists, medics as well, are starting to realize how much closer they've got to get to the policy process if they are to see you know, outcomes that are not favorable to them, but that are actually manageable in, in, in wider terms. And I think that um, uh, science, as a, an organized discipline, has become uh, probably much more efficient at, at, at having that engagement at different stages of the process. Now, I don't think we've worked out, and, and I, I agree with Nick, process is really, really interesting here. Um, I don't think we've worked out quite what is the best way to configure that set of relationships from the initial kind of raising of an issue, whether it comes from the scientists or others, right through to... Um, and I talked a bit earlier about governance and all the different strands that it can have, whether it's uh, legislation, regulation, uh, uh, cultural um, influences or other things, how all of those things play in together. And this is going to be a really interesting time to watch it happen in, in this particular context. And to make sure it happens properly. And just... Uh, yeah, sorry, Nick. I mean, I think there, in the in this sort of legal debate, I think what... Another thing that's kind of interesting to me, uh, observing this as well as being Im involved in this, is that the scientists themselves, especially the, gu the guys that you saw on the, on the, on the film, Drew, Drew Endy and, and Jay Keesling, have been involved in trying to think both of the legal side of the precaution, uh, precautionary aspect, but also the legal sides of the intellectual property aspects, which I, I think we might get to, get to later. 
So again, this has been, for me, an interesting experiment in people thinking about what's been good and what's been bad about some previous technologies. In particular, people learning from, from GM on the one hand and learning from those debates about the commercialization and patenting of the human genome on the other hand, actually taking those lessons very seriously in quite a short period of time and trying to develop a, a new model that at least has some, has some ways of not going down those, those, those blind pathways. I mean, there's a bigger picture here that centers like yours wouldn't have existed, I don't know, not that far in the past because of the awareness of the way that the life sciences and, and, and new developments in biology and biotechnology can impact on, on all of us. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I mean, in, in our own dear institution, if I can talk just uh, shortly about the LSE, whilst we've had a, a long-standing interest in questions of health and health policy, these more fundamental questions in the development of the life sciences, in the actual biological sciences themselves, have not really been seen as part of the LSE's agenda up until quite recently. But since then, both, if I can even mention the climate change, both in the climate change area with our big climate change centre and in, in BIOS relating to these new developments in in molecular biology and in genomics and in embryology and in assisted reproductive technology. People have become, we've certainly begun to realize that the world we live in is being fundamentally transformed by these developments and it's being transformed in a way that challenges us in the social sciences to both understand and engage with those sorts of things and not simply comment from the outside. So that, that's kind of hard. I'm, I mean, I, I, sometime last century I was a biologist so I I've made that journey myself, but I'm now making it back again. Well, I know it's not me who's meant to be asking questions, but I'm actually quite interested to ask questions of these guys over there. I mean, this whole agenda of embedding social scientists is happening all over the place. It's happening everywhere that there's a major laboratory in synthetic biology. And I know, I don't think there's any secret, that it's proved very difficult to get engagement in Berkeley, for example, Jay Kiesling's place, where they've got a, you know, a renowned social scientist working with them but it actually isn't w working very well at the moment, but it's still early days in that. It's not clear to me what the agenda of the social scientists actually is in any particular way. I'm sure Nick will be able to talk about that, but I'm interested to get your mm. perception sure. of what the social scientists' agenda is and whether you guys are incentivized to actually interact with them in a way that's going to help them. Well, we, well, well, we, we, we are very serious about interacting with the social scientists. I mean, when we put the... Um, application together for the for EPSERC, um, this was a key part of the application. I mean, it was also in the call, but I mean, we feel passionately that this is really very important uh, because, uh, you know, it is necessary, we believe, that um, as you develop this new area, synthetic biology, that um, you really take on board social responsibility in a way that hasn't been done before, um, to my knowledge. And what this means is that this process is going to be uncomfortable. I mean, there's no question about that. You know, you've got the interaction of these two fields, but um, the net result, if done properly, is going to be very important because, um, uh, you know, we're going to hopefully be able to take people along in terms of what it is we're trying to achieve here. We're going to be able to convince people that uh, when you look at the uh, balance of risk against benefit, that, there, that the, the benefit is very definitely positive uh, and the risk is uh, hopefully minimal. And we want to be able to train our, um, our you know, PhD students and our postdocs uh, in the whole area of social science responsibility and ethics as well as the, 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 um, the biology and the engineering and the physics. Well, that sounds very enlightened. Does everybody in the field feel like that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think synthetic biology is unusual in that sense because what it's done is it's brought a whole series of disciplines together, not just engineers and life scientists, but the social science element because... I mean, if you're a cynic, you'd say, well, we're doing it to avoid the GM problem, you know, we just have our social scientists sort of tapped on and 
therefore you know we can as scientists we can push ahead and do what we want because we've done our ethics but we've got them there they are they're in a little box and that's not really what people are trying to do in synthetic biology and uh, it is actually they're trying to form a conversation and a proper engagement and it's not so much for people like us I think although it's very exciting working with Nick um, I think it's for the students and the researcher the young researchers who who are hopefully in our center are going to be engaging with each other quite a lot about what they're doing and how they interact and how the process works and I think I mean that to me is very exciting from 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 my perspective and I think most of life science should actually have that anyway and I know Imperial is very keen on that and there are there are other universities I'm sure are keen and medics have it they, they've got a huge ethical there thing I think engineers have it don't they there is a bit about avoiding the GM problem I mean not in a tokenistic way as if we do this it'll look good but as in we don't want to end up falling into some of those traps well, so that's well, a true. circular yeah. argument yeah. I mean you know but I think it's transparent it's open the whole ethos of synthetic biology is open source transparency and community driven I think there's no one trying to hide anything you know this is this this is the science uh, this is where we are these are the decisions we're going to be faced with you know and I think that that's very refreshing I think anyway but I mean I, I think another aspect of this is that this is absolutely a two-way street I mean we're not we are interested in communicating with the public what we're doing but we are very interested in hearing what the public have to say to us and the reason for that is because uh, this is a new frontier in terms of science there are, you know, a vast number of people out there who work in other fields that are, you know, highly qualified, intelligent people. We want their input into this, and that's why this is so important. If that's not the cue for a question or point, I don't know what is. Uh, we'll take the gentleman in the middle at the back there. That's yourself, yeah. Hello, I'm Phil McNaughton. I've got a vested interest. I know a lot of these characters. So, but my my my, my question is this: It really um, uh, takes forward, I think, one of Hugh's questions, which is, um, what is behind uh, potential public anxieties to Synbio? And uh, my prediction, and I think there's some um, evidence of this, is what is behind it is not simply that it might produce harm but is what is it that we're actually doing? And it seems that what we're doing is we're adopting an engineering approach to life. And what is it involved in that? And uh, I suppose it seems that in, in some respects that that is what people, that's going to worry people. Is it natural? Are we tinkering? Are we messing with things we shouldn't be? And how do we engage with that thought? And it seems to do that that probably we need to have a normative theory of nature and that itself is very um, novel and demanding for ethical theory, it's demanding for social scientists, it's even more demanding as to how we might actually take forward that thought and bring it back into the governance of science. So, so that's my little challenge. Hugh Stone view on this, but there is there's this idea, isn't it, that is, even leaving aside the weather we can, and even leaving aside if there are ways to do it that's completely harmless, it's, are we as a species up for the responsibility of going, yes, we can do this and we can change other organisms? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I do think, I mean, it's what I started out with, I think this is, I think Phil's got, got, to, got to the question more clearly than I did, which was this inarticulate or unarticulated, if that's the a word, uh, anxiety, uh, which is sometimes expressed in these, these terms which are about playing God and messing with nature and you know, things that we hear a lot. And, and it's very easy to dismiss them because um, 
we're, we're, they're, they're not kind of based on the kind of lines of thought and science that, that we talk about. But there's something in there, and I, I'm not here to say um, uh, what they mean or what part they should play in the discussion. But simply, I'm simply acknowledging that they are there. They must have some meaning, and we need to explore that and get a good understanding of how um, that set of uh, um, thoughts play into it. Now, we're not, I mean, the idea of finding a normative view of nature, I mean, I, I, God knows 5,000 years hasn't done the job, but I don't know quite, <laughs> quite, quite, when, quite when we're going to get there. But, but if that's over-ambitious, we nevertheless um, can start to get some idea about um, what different groups of people think around those things and, and, and have the debate that will start to inform that, that a little better. I, I don't know where the answer lies. I absolutely don't. And it's going to be really difficult. I mean, I think what Dick said was really important here, which was there's going to be some tough battles going on here. But let's face up to them and open up and, and, and share our disagreements about some of these, the values, the concepts, the, the, the science as well. Because um, that process is going to be um, really uh, vital. But, but, I mean, in one sense, this is not new, is it? Because, I mean, just if you think about England, I mean, the country of England, just think how we've changed it as human beings over the last thousand years. I mean, it looks nothing like it was a thousand years ago. We've been breeding dogs for hundreds of years, you know, which has produced changes in terms of life. So, in one sense, and indeed plants, so in one sense, this is not new. I mean, that's not to say we shouldn't take this very responsibly and think carefully about it, but it's not some kind of sudden discontinuity in what's happened before. I, not to disagree with you, Dick, but I think the scale of what the possibilities are will, will, will make some strong challenges. I mean, if we can sit at our computers and design new genomes for microorganisms and send and hit the return button and then get the genome back in the post, that is going to create some uncomfortable feelings for people because essentially you will be making synthetic organisms to, I mean, these are only microbes. And interestingly, actually, when I was talking to some public about this, they didn't feel too bad about that. They didn't actually think microbes were alive. They didn't have any emotional attachment to an E. coli or anything. They felt perfectly happy to make all sorts of horrible little microbes because they're not alive. You Anyway, you move up the evolutionary tree a little bit and it starts emotionally impacting on people. I think they are alive, actually, and I think that we need to deal with them very carefully. Um, but it's just an interesting, you know, so I think the scale of the possibilities will will really come up against some pretty difficult problems, I think, with people's perceptions. But is it one of those things where it will what, what we can do go hand in hand with where the debate is at? As we begin to advance in what we're able to do, that's where it begins to get more nuanced, and that's where the arguments are going to get much more indeed. vitriolic on yeah, both sides. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Indeed. You know, if you go back to 2001 with the paper in Nature, the initial sequencing of the human genome, I mean, that's eight years ago. And you look at the way in which technology is developed in, in terms of far sequencing, far synthesis, etc. Yeah, this is being this debate is being driven by a lot of change. But the transparency and openness is what we what really the synthetic biology community want. They don't want to yeah. hide anything. They don't want to just pretend it doesn't exist. This is the technology. This is what it is. What do you think about it? I think I think that's a very important point. If I can just bring that out, I mean, one of the key drivers in terms of synthetic biology, in my opinion, has been the RGM competition. This is the international genetic, the engineered machine competition, which is run by MIT, which this year had 116 teams from around the world. Now, one of the very important aspects of the um, of the RGM competition is that every single team has what's called a wiki. Uh, which is uh, essentially an electronic notebook, and every single thing that you do in the competition is on that wiki. It's you know it's out there on the web. It's completely open, 
And, uh, you know, this is a key point in terms of the way that the synthetic biology community think about the openness in terms of the science they're doing. James? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, uh, the openness, the transparency that, that leading figures in, in Symbio have, have uh, demonstrated is, is obviously to be applauded. I mean, whether that spirit would survive through uh, a, a real public controversy in this area would be, would be very interesting to see. I mean, it's very unpredictable. Might be interesting to see, but we don't want to see it. I don't no, but I mean, this is... Uh, it's interesting may not be the word. It's not the word I would use, but... It's, uh, I mean, it's very unpredictable at what point and, and in what ways particular technologies, particular developments become... Um, condensation points for public concern and, and, and kick off the kinds of controversies that we've seen uh, over GM, uh, stem cells in different ways. Um, but this is just in the nature of science, isn't it? Science is a journey into the unknown. The unknown can always be made to seem scary. You can always scare people, therefore, about wherever science is going. Absolutely, yes. And, and it's, uh, so, I mean, the, but the sort of cosy uh, mood of, of openness, transparency, co-creation of the field with social scientists and ethicists alongside scientists is, is great. Uh, the question is just whether that can be maintained through what I, I guess in light of, of, of what others are saying is, is at some point an inevitable uh, uh, eruption of, of controversy in one area or another, whether it's something that Craig Venter does or something that some, someone else does or, or a, a biosecurity type uh, incident. Yeah, from the lofty position of nature, you're our media representative here. Can can this coziness survive a media onslaught? Uh, well, that's a well uh, coziness. No, in the sense that um, if you look at GM crops, one of the most notable things about it was how the scientists went to ground because of the way partly the media handled it. And uh, I think there are mechanisms that we now have in place, like Science Media Centre and other th other things, which actually help scientists not go to ground. So that's a good thing. But actually, I think the question started with this idea of a, a, a sort of an inchoate view of what nature might be. So, th I mean, two responses to that. One is, there's a, a, I think, a very nice and succinct paper, I'm not an expert in bioethics, um, written, commissioned by the BBSRC by Farmer and Martin, which you can find free on their website. And that looks, that, I think it's that paper that goes into how difficult it has proved to define life. So if part of the job is to have a definition and you can't even define life, defining nature is going to be that much more difficult. But the people, but an example of an organization that tried to define something about nature was the um, US President's Bioethics Commission, which produced a quite famous or notorious report called Beyond Therapy. And that was looking at human enhancement technologies. And, you know, that's an area where you're getting into what's natural and what's not natural. And it was a bioethics commission that took it upon themselves to do that. And although the makeup of that commission was highly contentious and, you know, there are lots of issues about that, you would imagine that the Nuffield or other people engaging with philosophers and social scientists and natural scientists could be given the task of taking on, exploring what is, as I think is rightly said by Paul, could be a real challenge later on as this technology develops. Paul, you want um, to make it sound just... You, you, do you I wasn't trying to make it all cosy, because it's, it's not meant no, no, to... No, no, but I was going to say, you make it sound like you can foresee one consequence is there might literally be a kind of people for the ethical treatment of bacteria. You know, <laughs> as people understand more about what is life, then more appreciate yeah, it more, sure. then we become more protective. In I mean, I think when people... I mean, I think people realise that we've been manipulating life for centuries. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, this is um, an extension of what we've already been doing very successfully in making, you know, alcohol, bread, whatever you want. I mean, we've been manipulating microorganisms for years. The whole of biotechnology has great big fats of organisms growing at the moment, producing 
biotherapeutics and, and human proteins and bacteria. We've been doing it for years. But that didn't particularly shed a lot of light on the GM debate, did it? No, it didn't. And, but I think, I mean, so this is not a new scientific activity in that sense. It's just the scale and the approach and the, diff and the way of thinking about design and engineering come into play on, on, a, on a field that has, has struggled, actually. I mean, biotechnology hasn't, I don't think, delivered the promise that it was meant to deliver. Uh, and I think this field has the potential to uplift that. Okay, I'm just going to take a couple more questions. Uh, gentleman there, and then we'll go to the two th at the back. It's a two-part question, but I might not make it to the second part. But um, Again, can we get you to, if you, unless you choose not to, to introduce yourself, it just keeps it all fresh. Sure. I'm a fugitive from justice. Fine. And uh, in that vein, I'm interested to know, um, if you really want to do some damage with this technology, uh, I'd be interested in hearing your best ideas for what could be achieved. Um, you know, influenza viruses, uh, immune to neuromindase inhibitors, those kinds of things, things we couldn't stop and things we couldn't see coming. Uh, I'd be interested in your ideas on the worst case scenarios for this. I have a second part of the question, but if, if we make it past Of that. course. Uh, I'll start with Paul. But can I just worst? add a cautionary note? Bear in mind, we will, this may not just be heard by the cosy audience with us. This is going out onto the internet, so yeah, no, 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 nothing no, that it, could actually I mean, cause I mean, a major death. This might sound really naive, but it's not something I've actually thought about. I haven't actually sat down and thought, how am I going to create the most horrible possible thing to release to the environment or do anything? I just, I, you know, I mean, there seems to be so many interesting organisms and things out there at the moment that I don't really need to create anything new. Uh, Ebola virus is pretty nasty, I gather. Anthrax is pretty good. Uh, um, and there are a few other really good stuff out there which I think you could go and get. And in fact, I think they closed a tube station today or something because they found some anthrax spores or something, which is a bit dodgy. I heard our prince in the metro or something. They found some thing anyway. But so, I mean, and then there's a lovely island in Scotland, Grunion Island, which is full of anthrax spores. Uh, where, where we did that in the Second World War. We were testing, was it the Second World War? Did yes, testing no, bio. So, I mean, what could Stedibolic create that we haven't already got? I mean, clearly, um, imaginatively, I suppose it will be able to make them a bit more sophisticated, a bit more controllable, but there's, I mean, there's a lot of really good nasties out there, actually, and I think, you know, we can really, we could manipulate those much more easily. Whether you can weaponize them, whether you can distribute them, I think this has been a big debate, and, you know, security agencies around the world, and, and weaponizing bio, 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 um, uh, viruses and things, and it's actually quite difficult, I've been told. Richard? Yes, I mean, uh, I, w I would take this from a slightly different angle by saying that um, uh, governments are concerned about this. Um, about three weeks ago, I was at a one-day meeting in, um, in Boston where the State Department uh, were addressing this whole issue. Um, as Paul says, um, the view there at the moment, and perhaps for the next few years, is that you know, things like anthrax um, and Ebola, etc., etc., are a much more serious threat than uh, what might be done with synthetic biology. Of course, that, that may well change in the future, but as we saw in the film, uh, and it, I know this from personal experience of going, I think, with Paul yeah. to, to GeneArt, yeah. which is one of the um, biosynthesis companies in Regensburg, it's one of the main ones in Europe. Uh, they absolutely screen every request for. Uh, synthesis in great detail to make sure that there is no particular threat there. Now, of course, something may slip through, but nevertheless, people are very conscious of this problem. And uh, I don't think it's a particular threat at the moment, or indeed for the next few years. But that's not, that's not to say we don't need to be extremely vigilant. James, I'm not going to get all, all the panel one at a time to go through with their death 
Yeah. But this I mean, is kind of the, the kind of lurking around this question is the kind of equivalent in this field of the grey goose scenario with nanotechnology. It's that kind of thing that can strike fear into the hearts of the, of the general public. Is that an issue in terms of government governance and regulating? You've talked about yeah. I mean, issues. I yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it was very striking that I mentioned the Washington meeting that we held. It was very striking at that meeting the uh, very strong presence from the uh, uh, defence and intelligence communities in, in Washington. Um, so clearly a lot of people are thinking about this. I mean, I don't know uh, what their worst-case scenarios would be. They did you see, that's immediately so. much scarier than anything Paul or Richard said. <laughs> um, Actually, and as I said, I mean, the, the Home Office here is looking, looking at this now. Uh, so, I mean, there is, a, there is an awareness of, of the dangers. Uh, I mean, I think Paul's point there is well made. I mean, there is a lot you can do with stuff that's much more readily available. You don't need to, uh, you know, if you want to uh, uh, engage in, in sort of uh, homebrew bio-warfare, there are easier uh, routes to doing that than, than synthetic biology at the moment. We're a species addicted to novelty, though, so... That... Yeah, I mean, it's just worth saying that there have been uh, malign individuals and organisations that have sought to weaponise uh, biological agents and with a notable lack of success. Um, they are difficult to weaponise and they are difficult to control. It doesn't mean that they, they won't be weaponised. And, they, and, uh, and people won't attempt to do, do this. Ohm Shinriko tried to do this, and they failed using some rather sophisticated technology. All right, things have moved on. Um, but um, I mean, I think there are, we ought first of all to look at the different scales. Um, I mean, the number of people who've been injured or killed by biological uh, weapons is tiny compared to the number of people who were killed. This is always my, my statistic, between 65 and 85,000 civilians killed in one night's bombing in, fire bombing in Hamburg in 1943, I believe it was. You know, we're not talking about anything on that scale. <clears throat> and the second thing to say is that, at least as far as European countries are concerned, most of the European countries are seeking to deal with uh, biological attacks within the same preparedness framework that they're using to deal with natural pathogens. Um, and these are quite well developed, in fact very, very well developed, clearly articulated, distributed preparedness strategies. And at least from the European perspective, the idea of a weaponized attack is not that different from the idea of avian flu or the idea of swine flu or something like that. And they're to be dealt with by the same kinds of by the same kind of mechanisms. So I don't think we should think that suddenly the threat has become scaled up. And clearly, at least one concern about why the threat might be different is because of a different conception of who the bad guys are, a different conception of how war is going to be fought, a different idea of war on terror and terrorism and so on. But it seems to me that that in itself is also not fundamentally changed by the availability of these kinds of weapons rather than a, a, a dirty bomb or something like that. Okay, with some trepidation, part okay, two. Okay, as quick as I can. The second part of my question was, yes, this is basically the thinking which needs to be done. This is not so much a question, but I would just invite your comments on, on the theory. Um, I would say that uh, we are constantly unleashing chaos. We're very innovative. We make new things to make them without really the foresight to know where they might lead. That is the story of human beings. We um, evolve extremely slowly. Uh, but we are able to innovate by standing on the shoulders of those which came before us. So in other words, everything which is being done in this field is the product of millions, hundreds of thousands of years of uh, evolution, during which the human brain uh, and our propensity to war and conflict and so on uh, has remained almost unaltered. But the sophistication of a, that you can grab in a single lifetime without the wisdom of those 200,000 years is, is the problem here, essentially. 
And so my uh, concern is that you would have to say that all attempts at, at security are absolutely fruitless. That, that there's nothing you can do to keep this under wraps. That is the, uh, the lesson of the Cold War. Somewhere, somewhere this will be leaked out. Uh, n nuclear secrets came out incredibly quickly, but we live in a, a world of the internet. It only needs to happen once, then it's everywhere immediately. And so my great concern is the democratization of this technology allied at the same time that we have a peer-to-peer -peer network around the entire planet for diffusing that potentially extremely destructive information. Yes, in three years it's not the big threat. In five years it's not the big threat. But we have to look out to the 30, 40, 50 year scenario because once this is out, as we know on the internet, there's just no putting it back. So th that's my worst case doom and gloom scenario. I, I would invite your comments on that. Nick. Well, I'm tempted to ask you what the alternative is. If your alternative is to say, stop, don't do it, enough, then I think that's equally unrealistic. The technology is there, the knowledge is there, the work is being done. So the stop scenario, the enough scenario, isn't going to, isn't going to work. I also think the apocalyptic scenario, which is a barrier to thought, it's a complete barrier to thought, the dreadful well, it depends in, on what you think about civilization at the moment. Yeah, it would be a good idea, I know, and all that kind of thing. But the dreadful has not already happened. The, the piecemeal methods that we have put in place to control multiple threats over tens, tens and hundreds of years have, by and large, worked. So I don't think we should be quite as negative about this. If you cannot stop these developments, which I think is unrealistic, then what you have to do is to seek with the best will in the world and the best technologies and the best ways of foresight that you have to try and, uh, and secure them. And I think what's interesting about these technologies is that those questions are being uh, thought about right at the very beginning. I mean, the sort of apocalyptic scenario that is your worst fear was also thought of in 1975 about the first genetically altered organisms in a Silomar. And there were very, very great fears about what would happen when those organisms w went out into the environment. And they, with very, very few exceptions, they haven't done so. So we shouldn't be quite so pessimistic about our existing piecemeal and probably always slightly failing strategies to deal with these kinds of things. I, I'd just like to bring up one point which might um, make it slightly different than the existing technologies, and that is the growth of the do-it-yourself biology um, philosophy around synthetic biology. I'm just trying to sort of put that into context because that is unusual. I don't, I mean, it, it, we haven't perhaps had the, well, I suppose we did. When we grew up, we had home chemistry sets, but you could never make anything really dangerous. And I guess the question is, is this a sort of, will, will we have this group of underground um, bioactivists out there creating all sorts of stuff? And, and you know, to be honest, I, I'm very excited that people are interested in biology and molecular biology, you know, getting perhaps public... That's not what I want them to get into the field for. Well, <laughs> but I, you know, why not? You know, the chemistry sets got, kind of got me into biology. Maybe, you know, a, a molecular biology kit for a kid Christmas, this Christmas might get them into the next generation of synthetic biology. I've got, not got a problem with it. And oh, come on. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> not interested in science. Have you thought about bioterrorism? I don't, I don't think it's a good selling character. Well, okay, but I, I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I think Nick's point is well made. I mean, I think the, the um, I mean, there will, there's bound to be an event or an incident or something. And, and I, you know, the, the, I mean, there's always something happening. I mean, there was an, there was an event in, in Japan in a, in a tube situation where, I mean, there was, there's always going to be events, sporadic events, I think. It's, it, but I mean, this, we're talking, I don't know, Nick, if you want to. I, I just want to say one, one tiny little thing. If it was the case that synthetic biology was all downside, 
was all risk and no upside, then we'd never be able to make a decision about it. And if you feel that, then I think all the risks would lead you to say, well, this has to be stopped. I don't know how. Lock up my colleagues at the end, prevent them, take their laboratories away, etc., etc. But <clears throat> you may not be as uh, optimistic as our little movie at the beginning about malaria, but it is the case that between one and three million kids die every year out, yes. uh, because of malaria. And it is the case that artemisinin is quite a good drug. And it is the case that it's expensive and difficult to get. And if it was the case, say that three, those three million kids' lives were saved against one incident of accidental release or even deliberate release uh, through, through bioterrorism of an engineered organism, well, how do you weigh that in the balance? Um, uh, I leave that to you. But I, I don't think, if, if, if it was only risk and no upside, then I think your, your worries would be very, very, very serious. But if there are some upsides, as I believe there are, then that places the thing in a, in a different context. Right, so you come back to the argument that a knife can, can cut, it can prepare food, it can do surgery, but it can also stab. You can't do everything with chopsticks. You sometimes have to accept that a beneficial technology may have some negative ramifications. Chopsticks through the eye, I believe, uh, Quentin, are kind of quite dangerous. <laughs> okay, we're going to go to the two at the back. I promised we'd go to you next. Um, I'm James King. I've been working with the Cambridge iGEM team over the summer as a, a designer. Um, I'd be interested to know, it was a, a, a subject touched on a, a few minutes ago, um, about uh, the panel's attitude or their personal definitions of what life is, because or especially the, um, the scientists on the, on the panel who work with it every day in the lab, whether the vital characteristics are metabolism, um, a, a cell, that kind of thing or whether there are other definitions that they work by. We really are going to tackle the meaning of life. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Philip, after, after this debate, where, where did you get to in terms of defining life? Did they just give up in the end? No, well, in the, in the paper, they really? said it was it's so far an, an unsolved problem. And oh, uh, in fact, I was talking to a, a, a back, in, in terms of the definition, and uh, I was talking to um, well, Paul Nurse, who gives a lecture about that very topic, and he said he still hasn't come up with an answer that satisfies him. So I'm going to pass the buck if he can't solve it. He's, and he's a Nobel laureate. This is an issue that philosophers are struggling with, have been struggling with for years. I mean, we're not going to answer this in the next five minutes. No, so. I thought it was, it was a big one to yeah. try to think of the meaning of life. <laughs> from a laboratory sense, I think life's a pain in the ass because things <laughs> that, that you know we want to make organisms do, they don't do it. <laughs> so, Quite frustrating. Sorry, that was a flippant remark. But anyway, yeah. Well, I mean, we, it's not that. I mean, we're, we're pretty clear about some things that are living, and we're pretty clear about some things that aren't. There's just a kind of yeah. dodgy area in the middle. But it, I, I think this is, you know, I, <clears throat> I think synthetic biology, like other developments in biology, pose this question to us, and I do think it has quite profound sort of conceptual and philosophical implications. It's not really a question of answering what is the limit of life, where are the boundaries of life. But if it, <clears throat> if it is the case with the DNA synthesis, for instance, the, the four bases of DNA are sugar bases. Okay, so they are uh, definitely not alive, assembled together in a certain way, and placed in an organism, they can create those things that you begin to think of as life. But I say created, placed in an organism. Again, going back to the film at the beginning, it was either Jay Kiesling or, or Drew Enney, I think it was Jay Kiesling, who said, well, we're actually not creating life. We're kind of hijacking living processes and turning them to our own ends. And I think at the moment, that is definitely the place where synthetic biology is. There's an awful lot that it can't do. 
And at the moment, it's pretty much limited to either acellular entities or monocellular entities. Uh, the, the thought of synthetically creating a multicellular organism is, I think, at the moment, way beyond the capacity yeah. of uh, even uh, people like, like Dick, and, Dick and Paul here. And even the reason why they would want to create those things. I mean, you see very good reasons why people want to do the things that they want to do. Artemisian in his one in, in the work that Dick and Paul are doing, uh, developing back bacterial films that can detect infections, MRSA, or infections in catheters. There are very good reasons for creating those kinds of things. Exactly why you'd want to make a multicellular organism is not entirely clear to me, even if you had the capacity. But that doesn't mean that it's not a really interesting question to challenge us about where we think life begins and ends. I'll just say very quickly, I mean, I think my answer and maybe some of the others sound a bit disingenuous because, of course, there is somebody like Craig Venter who's trying to make the minimal organism. So if you make something that hasn't occurred in nature but is an organism that seems to be able to take stuff in from its environment, sustain itself, and then produce generations to follow which are shown to be subject to the laws of natural selection, then I think anybody would say that you have developed Craig. life. So that's my... I don't want to start a debate here, but that's where I would, <coughs> I would be proud to publish that paper, actually. Already in a debate. Okay, um, it's James Brown again. I'm a synthetic biologist at Cambridge, and um, you'll gather from what I keep putting my hand up all the time, I'm very passionate about synthetic biology and its potential, having seen it for the last five to six years in action and realised the technology we have in the lab and the difference it can make. You know, I'm, I'm starting a debate right now when I could be cloning. I just left Cambridge to an hour ago. I could be cloning and building an arsenic biosensor, which would change people's lives in, in the developing world. I'm I don't the know how extraordinary you realise it sounds to the outside world. I'm sat in a debate when I could be cloning. There'll well, be a lot of people but this is my point. And, and this is, this is, and I've just, you know, I've just been, I had the pleasure of uh, supervising seven students who didn't, hadn't been, been in the lab before. James came in, came in at the start of the summer as well to see what was going on. Caitlin Cockerton, who's Nick's PhD student, came and watched us do it all summer. And I've just seen seven undergraduates from physics, uh, biology and engineering combine with social scientists and designers from the Royal College of Art and make a technology in 12 weeks which can now be potentially developed in the next two months to go and detect arsenic in water in the, in the developing world and the developed world and potentially then extract it as well. Now, why, why am I sat here debating this and not busy as a bee with my robot and my cloning and my pipette? And then I think I'd like to ask the panel, and specifically not Nick and Dick and Paul, because I know their views, I know them well, and I know how passionate they are about the promise of synthetic biology. I know we always end up talking about risk, and we talk about um, what people could do if they really wanted to, or if they just didn't know what they were doing. And that's a really interesting debate, and it's one that's gone on for a long time since genetics has been on the forefront of, of technology for the last 30 years. My question really to the panel is, particularly the, the neutrals up there, what is your feeling on the promise of synthetic biology, specifically in the UK, and what are we doing, and if we're not doing it, what should we be doing to invest in those technologies? Because from my point of view, I've just seen uh, Cambridge and Imperial and Edinburgh and Bristol and Newcastle, Southampton, I keep, I'm probably missing someone out, do very, very well in an international competition, representing the UK, outdoing the Americans, outdoing the Europeans, and putting Britain in a very, very strong place in terms of synthetic biology, and yet we really haven't necessarily seen the investment, I don't feel, or the faith from funding councils and from research councils yet to, uh, to, okay, to take us forward. Let me, put your, let me put your question to the people on the panel who are not Nick and Dick and Paul, so I'll start with James. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean it's fantastic. That, I mean, UK, as I understand, took five of the seven main, main prizes at iGEM this year. I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and as you say, off the back of... of uh, 
comparatively little um, directly targeted investment. I mean, the question, of course, is whether you need... I mean, I can see Doug Curl down here in the front row, so I uh, should defer to him. But uh, whether you need, um, uh, you know, defined um, programmes in in the area of synthetic biology, this was something that Dick uh, and his panel in the Royal Academy of Engineering called for in a report they published uh, um, a few months ago. Uh, or whether there's sufficient um, funding flowing through the usual response mode system to, to sustain this. I mean, it seems to me that almost off the back of, of, of the IGEM result and clearly what is a groundswell of, of real enthusiasm for this field um, at, at both undergraduate and postgraduate level in the UK, that we should be doing something uh, more. I, I don't know what, what Doug would say to this. Um, that said, as we all know, we're at a point in the wider um, economic and political cycle where... Uh, the prospect for, for new and additional money for any area of science is uh, is is uh, a difficult sell politically, um, and, and believe me, this is something that, that exercises us a, a huge amount uh, within the Royal Society. James, so, I'm just going to push you a little bit off this fence that you're getting yourself comfortable on here. Yeah. <laughs> how yes the big no. question lurking <laughs> in there is how's it doing? How are we doing at it? How can we do more with it? Well, I, I mean, I, you know, don't don't mistake me for the for the representative from the Treasury. I mean, absolutely, we we we, you know, I am we are the ones making this this very case uh, in the corridors of, of Westminster and Whitehall right now. Um, you're right. There has been a huge amount of extra money through the stimulus packages in the U.S., in China, um, Germany's ring fence science budgets. We made a very strong case, along with the research councils and others, for a, a similar a similar stimulus boost for science. Uh, in the budget earlier this year. That was unfortunately unsuccessful. Um, so, yeah, we have a big task uh, ahead of us. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, if we are getting uh, additional monies, then absolutely this is the kind of area where additional money should go for. So we need to keep fighting for that. We have a big project uh, underway within the Royal Society called the Fruits of Curiosity that's trying to make this very case politically to uh, all parties ahead of the election, and we'll be publishing that in, in March. But uh, all I would say, and I'm, again, I'm sure... I keep looking down to Doug because I know he, he's sure making this case with Treasury and others. You know, it is a very, very difficult climate, and um, you know, at a time when we have 175 billion deficit uh, in the public accounts, uh, we in the science community are, are uh, I think, at the moment, fighting a losing battle in persuading uh, the people who need to be persuaded that uh, uh, we deserve even a maintenance of existing funding, let alone extra funding. And I regret and lament that. I don't, uh, I don't defend it. Okay, we're just going to briefly hear from, first of all, Philip, because I want to get some more questions before the end. Well, I will say very briefly, um, the scientific community has got to be uh, very compelling, especially in the current climate, in making its case. And you put your finger on one thing, which is the industrial. I mean, you know, Britain has still a terrible track record, except perhaps in the bio industry, the pharmaceutical industry. So one of the promises of this is in pharma, apparently, in the long term. So I don't know. I mean, this is my ignorance here. I don't know to what extent British-based pharmaceutical companies are buying into synthetic biology. But that would have 
a real impact on the government, I would suspect, if they were. So you need to get people articulating your case alongside scientists simply asking for more money. Um, and the, but, but, I mean, if I look at the scientific literature, I, I can't say I've done a survey, but I don't think Britain is strong in the literature. I think we are, I think we are playing catch-up here. And you need that vigorous advocacy if you have a chance of getting stellar people in place to help lead the community here. Hugh, what would persuade you, since you're the neutral? Uh, I, I am so neutral, I'm going to put myself very firmly on the fence. Um, if, you ask, if the question you're asking is, um, if I can show you a good thing, will you support it? Then, of course, the answer's got to be yes. But there are lots of people who are claiming to be showing a good thing. And I don't think that necessarily even the whole of the scientific community would say that this is the thing to put the money into. So I, I, what I'm saying is, you know, there's, there's competition for money. And if we're going to direct uh, research funding, well, it's got to be based on uh, a, a, a discussion, an understanding of priorities, and a set of values about where we're going to understand it. And that's not just about um, the one question about, uh, um, you know, what is scientifically looking like the best, the best bet. And I think that I would just say that you can't, take this outside of its social context, which is why, you know, you've got to engage other people uh, uh, in certainly things that have got um, potential implications that are much further reaching. And if that's what we're doing is having a discussion about that, great, alongside the proper development of science. So it's not, we, we don't do one thing or the other. I should warn you, if you do put yourself too firmly on the fence, you may be in need of synthetic biology. Uh, Richard, you just wanted to comment quickly. Yeah, I just wanted to make two quick points. I mean, the first thing is that uh, we shouldn't hide behind the fig leaf of the IGM competition. Yes, the UK did extremely well this year. We've done extremely well in previous years. But it is a student competition. And what we are talking about here is taking synthetic biology up to the professional level. And that's why we seriously proposed in the Royal Academy of engineering inquiry report which I uh, chaired uh, that we do do need a number of centres in the UK which take this up to the professional level. Yes the research councils do, are doing a very good job in, in providing some funding but we do need more and that's what the um, international referees all said. They said we we're being far too conservative in the report if we really wanted UK PLC to have a major, imp to have a major impact in terms of this area. Okay, I want to get a couple more questions before we finish. Uh, we'll go to lady there. Hi, Sophia Lambera here from LSE. Um, I was hoping to go back to the intellectual property question and um, ask how you think intellectual property law will be applied in a field that prides itself on open access. Okay, Richard, I think we should start with you because you've been involved in the kind of company side of this as well. Yes. I'm um, sorry, I wasn't talking to Paul. Sorry. <laughs> really? You know what? I have to be honest. Could you repeat the question? Yeah, beg your pardon. So I'm really sorry. I was wondering about intellectual property and how that will be applied in a field that prides itself on open access and okay. transparency. Right. Fine. Um, so this is this is an issue which has been debated quite widely in within the synthetic biology community, and I think we have a fairly common view on uh, how to proceed in this area. Uh, the common view is that um, at what I would call a base level, we establish um, an open source registry, which is a professional registry as opposed to the MIT one, which is essentially uh, for iGEM. And this, would, this will contain all the parts that you need for the basic research, etc. It also will contain all the parts, the same parts, for the next level, which is the commercialization of this. And so the idea is that um, uh, there will be this uh, open source registry with all the key parts, which 
universities, um, research institutions, etc., can, can can access free of charge. Uh, but when commercial companies want to use the parts uh, for commercial products, they can do this, and they take the parts, they turn them into commercial products, they can patent those commercial products, and then they can, um, you know, uh, sell them, and that's how they that's how they will make their profit. And they may well uh, be charged money to access the parts. But the key point is that it's a two-layer model. The lower la level giving direct access to the universities and the research institutes, etc., free of charge. And the upper level allowing the, uh, the commercial companies to produce products. That, that's the thinking that's going on. Right, right so now. everyone gets to play with the Lego, but if you make something particularly interesting, then that becomes yours. Yeah, th right. that's right. Okay, uh, I think we don't need to get everybody on that one. We're going to go to gentleman there first, and then lady there. Hi, I'm Tu, I'm a designer. Um, I've heard quite a few debates about um, what Paul will all do wrong in his lab, and that we're really afraid of Drew Andy doing something wrong in his lab, and, and the, the kind of, so all about the risks and the benefit. And all these kind of polarized debates, in a way, to me, are not. I'd like to take it a step further and, and kind of ask the questions mainly to the social scientists on the panel and James and Nick um, in terms of, because it, it, there'll be free fuel for everyone and we can have long debates about the risks and stuff and it, I just don't think it's quite interesting. And I'd be interested to hear about how do we kind of engage with, how do we engage people with the implications of this technology because we know it's going to change the world. And, and if you look at the internet, we kind of, it's been around for 20 years now, maybe 25. We don't quite understand it. It never breaks down. It's still changing the world, like the, the media is totally different. Um, education is probably profoundly changing still under, under this technology, which is called the internet. And how do we engage now into like say 10, 20, maybe 50 years ahead, how is synthetic biology going to change the world? And how do we engage a public in, in a debate about these implications and not necessarily about the applications? Perhaps the public that doesn't understand what is the technology. Perhaps the public that doesn't want to understand, want to understand what how the kind of cogs and the and the E. coli work. Um, and what are the kind of models for that? What are the social models? What are the policy models? And how do we co-create that? I guess the question is, what are the kind of equivalents in the social sciences for all of the tools we've seen, um, the wikis and the parts registries and all the open source open models in the science. I think this is a how question, but also to an extent it's a when question, because of when relative to what the potential versus the delivery from synthetic biology, do you begin to really bring in the general public? I think, I mean, you mentioned the internet, and one of the interesting things about uh, innovative technologies like synthetic biology is that it's all very well to talk about the implications, but we don't quite know what they are. But we do know that what we do now might shape what those implications are. So we are, to go back to something I said right at the very beginning, we are, we're forced with problems about making choices about things that might have implications 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the line, as the person over there said, when we don't really know what those implications are. And our capacity, it has to be said, our, the capacity of social scientists like anybody else to predict those implications um, at one point, and if you go back and look 50 years ago at the implications that were predicted of various technologies then, it's kind of amusing. Uh, so we know that we have to take responsibility for a future that we are unable to control in some ways. I think we have to be quite open about that. And the second thing I, I think that we have to do is to say, well, actually the paths, that, the paths of development of this technology are not shaped. They're not given. 
They're not given. They're up to choices that we make about where we put the investment, about what kinds of research we encourage, and about what kinds of research we support and what kinds of research we don't. I think very... I think it's very important that synthetic biology demonstrates, and this goes back to the point that Hugh made, demonstrates quite rapidly that it is capable of producing public value and the kinds of public values that it can produce in reality rather than speculating about a world in 30 years' time when there'll be free fuel for everybody. We can at least begin to control or understand and maybe uh, uh, debate about the next three or four steps, but I don't really think it's, it's uh, humanly possible to consider what the steps might be in 20 or 30 years' time. But in answer to the tools, I think what is interesting is there are, a multiple, there are multiple tools now that are trying to be developed, foresight initiatives, scenario planning, horizon scanning, and so on and so on and so forth, where people are trying rather seriously to say game play what the future might be on the basis of the, of the decisions that we make now. I think they're all rather imperfect. They're nowhere near as sophisticated as the ones that you're developing in your labs, but they are what we have, and we should try and, and take them seriously. And on the, the governance side, I think, I mean, just one of the things since we're moving up towards the end of this, I think that the question needs to be taken seriously, not simply in a national context. It would be daft for us to say that that future is going to be shaped by what we do in Britain or what they do in the United States. Think about what's happening in India. Think about what's happening in China. Think about how you can have a genuinely global debate about how these, uh, these questions are managed. And one of the things I'm delighted to say that we're doing with the Royal Society is exactly beginning to work on some of those global governance questions. Okay, first... Um you, you, described, you described yourself as being the kind of, kind of neutral, naive one, but I know you had a whole day of this um, uh, yesterday at the, at the Nuffield Council. Well, but, 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 but I was going to say, in, in terms of the question that was asked here, surely there are still large swathes of the public out there who, if you just go and talk to them and use those words, synthetic biology, we're still at a stage it means almost nothing. That, that, that's right, and, and, uh, and I'm sure that there are ways in which we can um, try and um, help them to, to, to understand what it is and, and to do that. Um, and Nick's already said there are people who are developing ways of doing this. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm not terribly impressed, actually, with this idea that science is running way away ahead of our capacity to think about it and understand it. Um, it, it, it seems to me that you know, if you go back 50 years or 100 years and find out how much the public knew about the front edge of science at that point, I think it would be a damn sight less than, than people do now. I think that we are improving our capacity to share that information. We've got science that's uh, coming out and willing to do that. We've got, I don't know how many social scientists there are today compared to 30 or 50 years ago, um, but I dare say it's, there's, there's been a kind of a bit of an increase in that. Too, too few, my colleagues. Uh, uh, profession <laughs> um, as well. And, and so I, I, I'm... I'm quite optimistic, in a sense, about uh, not that we will f find certainty or we will understand precisely what the implications are, but that we're actually in a position to, to create this uh, um, exchange of information and a better understanding. Don't be embarrassed to be optimistic. That's good. Richard, I think you want to just jump in very briefly, because I want to get that yeah, one Yes, so I, I just want to make the point that, um, of course, everybody wants to look into a crystal ball and see what's going to happen in synthetic, to synthetic biology in 30 years' time. One way to do this is to look at what happened to synthetic chemistry. So synthetic chemistry in the middle of the 19th century was in a rather similar position. If you read about the history of synthetic chemistry, what it led to were the great industries of the 20th century. And we don't know if synthetic biology will do that, but if you look at the parallel with synthetic chemistry, uh, it may well be that a similar um, revolution, as I called it at the beginning, may well take place. 
and perhaps possibly even to take the, the analogy further that synthetic chemistry helped transform the world, but the term itself probably doesn't have that much resonance no, to, the, to the public, so synthetic biology yeah. might actually just briefly be rising. Okay, uh, I promised that question there, lady there, and because it's the luck, can you possibly make it a kind of climactic, big finish <laughs> question? That would be good. <laughs> Uli Beisel from the Open University. Um, I've got a question concerning the malaria drug artemisinin. Yeah. Um, as you may know, resistances against artemisinin have been confirmed this year from Cambodia, and um, there are worries that they are spreading. Um, and so the question really is, how does the issue of biological resistance rub up against our notion of progress? And the second question that artemisinin raises is, um, to me, where do we locate innovation? Because artemisinin at the moment gets produced at plantations in Asia and Africa, where a lot of farmers um, earn their livelihoods from. And this would obviously change if we have synthetically produced artemisinin. So those are my two quick questions. <laughs> Although, of course, you could have a whole huge debate about artemisinin <laughs> research. But Shall I deal with yeah, the first one? Yeah. So, uh, in relation to your first point, um, if you read, read the World Health Organization report on this, you, you'll see that uh, what it says is that the, um, the, the modification of malaria in relation to artemisinin occurs in relation to the natural version of this from the annual wormwood plant. And that is precisely uh, an issue that Jay Kiesling is addressing. Um, and the second generation of artemisinin, which he's working on right now, is uses, I'm sorry to use a bit of jargon, but it uses the parts-devices approach that's well known in many areas of synthetic biology, precisely because you can fairly readily modify the, uh, the artificial version of artemisinin to take account of the modification in, in, in the malaria strains. That, that's, if you like, the theory, but I mean, that's the practice which is being worked out in the lab right now. And that does not apply to the, the natural strain. I mean, the issue about farmers going out of business is a very tricky one. And, I mean, it's, it's not one I don't think scientists can, can solve. I mean, I don't think Jay Keating can solve that problem. It's a, a government problem, a social problem. And, I mean, it is a problem. And, and obviously, the governments of those countries need to, need to think about that, I mean, at some level. I mean, it, you could say that, I mean, the... I mean, the Brazil government introduced the, the bioethanol revolution um, when, when the price for sugarcane dropped out, and there was a massive implication uh, there. And, and I suspect what's going to have to happen is it's going to have to be other types of remuneration or, or reward for those, those farmers growing this stuff. I don't know. But it's not a scientific problem. But it is a crucial problem because, uh, as we all know from the history, the technology doesn't live on its own. And when you alter the technology, you're altering a whole socio-technical yeah. system. Yeah. And whilst we might be very good at uh, yeah. predicting and standardizing the parts and devices, we're perhaps less good about uh, yeah. thinking what the consequences might be for that whole socio-technical system. Center. And that is exactly <laughs> the kind of thing that we uh, hope that we're going to try and do. Exactly. See, that was a climactic question. <laughs> <laughs> um, apologies for running out of time, but uh, first of all, I have to say the good news. We, we don't do remuneration, but there is the opportunity to have a glass of wine outside in the atrium afterwards, but only first after you've thanked our panel in the customary way.